You're listening to In the Ring with Acacia Courtney. Thanks so much for tuning in. It has been a crazy couple of weeks in the world of racing, especially where I am at Gulfstream Park as we had the Pegasus World Cup and then we were right under the Kentucky Derby Trail with the Holy Bowl this weekend. Um, so I'm a little tired. I'm probably a little bit loopy too, but uh, the racing has been great and our equine stars have been putting on some shows for us the past couple weeks. Hope you all have been tuning in and enjoying all of the great racing that we do have this time of year. We also had the Eclipse Awards last week. Uh, for those of you that are listening or maybe are not familiar, think the Academy Awards of Racing. And uh, it was all virtual this year, too. I had the honor of hosting the Eclipse Awards last year alongside Gabby Gaudet and Brittany Erton. And this year, we got to be part of it once again. But we were also joined by some special guests from around the country for the 50th Eclipse Awards, since we weren't able to all be together in one place, thanks to COVID-19. Uh, I, I have to give a shout out to the team behind the scenes who put the show together, too, especially Amy Zimmerman and GD Hieronymus. I hope you got a chance to watch it and check it out. It was a ton of work to make this virtual things recorded in Florida, Kentucky, and California. The recipients of the awards, the, the three finalists in each category, recording from all around the country and, and wherever they might be. And they put together a beautiful show. Everybody behind the scenes worked so hard about it. And honestly, I think as much as everyone complains about the Eclipse Awards every year, I think you all missed not having it this year. So hopefully next year we'll be able to be back at Gulfstream in the Sport of Kings Theater and have the Eclipse Awards back as usual and, uh, and have the band playing the speeches off the stage as we all love to talk about the next day. Uh, we'll talk about the Eclipse Awards on today's show though as I'll be joined by someone who took home one of the Eclipse trophies the other night. And we'll also talk about some of the international sales discussion uh, as Tattersalls had their first sale of, or has their first sale of the year coming up this week. And it's completely virtual. Um, no horses on the grounds, no consigners, no buyers on the grounds. Uh, we wrapped up the OBS winter mix sale this past week and the sales season is in full swing here in the U.S. So, all right. Let's kick it off in style with trainer Kenny McPeak, who has purchased some incredible horses at the sales over the year, over the years, including Swiss Skydiver, who just this past week was named champion three-year-old filly at the Eclipse Awards. Kenny, first of all, congratulations on the Eclipse Award with Swiss Skydiver. She has just had an incredible year. What did it mean to be recognized in that way? It was pretty special. You know, I've been second and third eight or nine times. I had had a, uh, had a long list of horses that had run well in a lot of the Breeders' Cup races. And it was um, a little bit frustrating, but um, she's a special filly and it was a fantastic year. Now, she was one that you had purchased for just 35000 Tell me a little bit. Let's backtrack back to that day at the sale when you saw her. What were your first thoughts? Well, to be honest with you, we, we worked those sales so hard. Um, for me, it's the, the end of, I mean, or it's the beginning of a, what we deal with for the next two or three years if we get a good horse. So um, I bought her off Carrie Brogdon, who's a longtime friend of mine. And the truth is, is that I can't really remember that much about the whole deal other than I know that she was in barn eight. Um, I remember looking at her on the path and I think I had Dominic Brennan up at the ring and he signed for her while I was out back. Um, you know, the logistics of those sales are pretty amazing. Um, you know, they sell 400 horses a day. We're on the move constantly. We've got to make, make rapid fire decisions on horses we like. But I love those sales, and, and it's been the, basically the, the method of my madness on, as a trainer is buying young horses at auction. I love doing it. Hey, I've heard you say several times how much you enjoy it, and there really is just kind of that electricity in the sales ground. What is it, do you think, that, that makes it so enjoyable when you go there and you're looking to buy blood stock and thinking about the future? Well, it's the ultimate challenge as a horseman when you're – when you're out there trying to find horses, I mean, trainers are only as good as the stock they have. There are a whole list of really talented trainers in North America or worldwide that simply don't have the stock. And for me, what differentiates a lot of the guys is the quality of the horses they get. So um, I'm 
I'm going to tell you, I'm obsessive when I'm at the sale. I've got to find a better horse than all the other guys. And it's a very competitive game. And if you don't find good horses, then then you're going to get beaten. And um, so it all kind of it all pays for itself if you do a good job at the auctions. Can you tell me a little bit about your process at the sales? Obviously, you're going to be looking at some different things. If it's a two-year-old sales, you have the breeze show. You have some of those um, kind of more things to look at. Yearlings, different horses of racing age, a little bit different as well. What is your process like when you're at the sales? Um, you know, it, it, it's um, turnover every stone first. Um, the the math, and, and there is a math to all this, okay? Um, the July sales typically are eight to nine percent auctions uh the august sale in saratoga the select sessions probably ten percent then you go to um you go to keeneland september where day one is seven percent stakes winners in the first session and then by the last session it trickles down to two percent and then phasic october is typically three or four percent stakes winners so i know that in each session i've got a pretty good idea how many stakes winners and I'm going to call it the squeezing a method. So if there's 400 horses in a day, we take the 400 and we look at all the physicals and we squeeze them down. Let's say, let's say it's first day Keeneland September and it's a 7% session. Then I know that there are 28 stakes winners in that session. Mm -hmm. So my job is, is to squeeze the group down, get all the physicals out there. Then we create a, a short list. Mm -hmm. And we do, we use the equine line um, app to be able to email that short list to all my clients. And then we proceed to do vet exams. We do uh, uh, gene testing and then we wait at the ring with somebody ready to bid on the ones that we think are going to be, you know, the ones that will fit the, the check all the boxes per se. And I, I, I don't have, uh, I don't discriminate grass horses, sprinters, routers. Um, I, I think they come in all shapes and sizes, but they have to have a certain thing. They have to have great hip. They have to have great shoulder. They have to have great balance. They don't have to be perfect up front when, you know, when they move through themselves. Every horse is different. And um, if I spend people's money wisely, then they give me more money mm -hmm. to spend. Then it kind of refuels for the next sale, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How how much do you put kind of stock into a confirmation flaws? Are there certain things that you're willing to be a little bit more forgiving on and certain things that you're not willing to to take a chance with? Um, I think a hind leg is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, th there are a lot of what I call points of reference on the hind leg when you go from the point of the hip to even the positioning of the stifle and the hock mm -hmm. and the fetlocks and all the angles and even the feet. Um, I've never trained a really, really good horse that had a bad hind leg. Um, I've had plenty of them that had questionable front ends, but the hind leg makes all the difference. It's the motor and then balance is a big deal. And then, you know, it, it is, it's really instinct. Um, you, I find myself attracted to certain horses when they show a good eye that they show energy. I think a lot of horses are, it's, it's energy. It's moving, breathing art. Mm -hmm. And um, a horse can show that they're stubborn or they can show that they're, they're, uh, they feel good. I think some horses have positive energy and some horses have yeah. negative energy. And um, I, we get a chance to feel that out before we bid on them. What was kind of the process like, if you remember back with the going back to Swiss Skydiver, was there kind of a moment when you said, oh, wow, I think we just got the best bargain ever. She's actually really good. Okay, so she she is um, one of those kind of quiet students in the classroom that does mm -hmm. everything right, but doesn't bring too much attention to herself. Um, when we broke her, she was very easy. Um, we broke her at Magdalena in Lexington. She um, went through all her early paces, was a complete lady. We did not, you know, nobody said, oh, wow, she looks like she could be great. No, didn't really do that. She went to Abracadabra. Once again, she was... I don't think I remember even discussing her one way or another during the winter, but in the spring, um, when I got her into my barn, her first workouts were, oh, wow, this filly's got some talent. We were just going three furlongs, you know, three eights, three eights, and then she chipped an ankle. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden it was like, okay, we got to call timeout and get that taken care of. And she did that 
I want to say in May or June. Um, she didn't make the races until later in the fall. But when we got when we were getting her ready, um, there was no doubt that she was okay. This filly does everything right every day, and um, she never got outworked ever. And and good horses do that. You, mm-hmm. you a young horse doesn't when when you're preparing them. A good one doesn't get outworked at any point in time. They figure a way. I love hearing that. And I think it's a really interesting concept too, in, in seeing kind of that almost intangible part about them, that competitive nature, which it seems like she really has too. Well, she, she's extremely smart. Yeah. And yeah, she's, um, she's a filly that very observant. Actually, she's in the stall right out here, right next to me, but she um, pays attention to everything and she's got her ears up when feed time's coming. She, drills the feed tub, which is pretty amazing concept. This filly never misses an oat. My night watchman says he drops the feed in. She eats so fast he can't remember whether he fed her or not. <laughs> he said he looks back and oh, it's gone. And, that, and, and that's not something you can train. That's something that they have to have, you know, inherent. I feel like myself and many people have really become such a big fan of her this past year in particular because she's danced every dance. Like you said, she's never missed a note. She's just been so durable, so solid, different tracks, longer distances against the boys. I mean, what is it like to have a horse like that that just handles everything that's been thrown at them? It's been pretty special, especially through the pandemic. I mean, we Mm -hmm. had to travel and she didn't miss a beat. And every time I thought, well, I'll skip a race. She would say to me, no, no, I'm, let's go. I mean, she, she always talks like she's ready to go. We actually breezed her here this morning at Gulfstream. We just let her work. She worked a quarter and out an eighth, just letting her stretch her legs. And it's the first serious work, but she just, she loves to run and she loves what she does and never flinches, goes out there, never turns a hair and she's all game. I got to see her up close uh, on the week of the Preakness as was out there in the morning with you guys. And I loved seeing her dragging you around in the shed row. She she just marches around like she owns the place. It seems like I, I don't know how much stock you put into a bond with a horse when you're a trainer and you have horses coming in and out. But it seems like you and Swiss Skydiver do have a special bond. Yeah, you know, I, I really enjoyed that week. Um, yeah. You know, most you know, my, I've got a lot of horses. I don't deny it. Um, but I don't get a chance to get a lot of one-on-one. Mm-hmm. Um, here at Gulfstream in the winter, I've got 40 horses here, and um, I love being close. And then, you know, I'm traveling all the time. Something, well, actually less now than ever. Mm-hmm. But um, with her, that week was really special. I was number one hot walker. I was, <laughs> you know, number one hose, hose her legs in the afternoon. Um, it reminded me when I started, when I had two or three horses, and I did everything myself, and and um, she's just been a real pleasure to be around. And everybody around her really loves her. I mean, Chico that takes care of her, her groom, you know, he's bonded with her. The night watchman, Greg, Danny, the exercise rider, Lalo gets on her. Even Robbie Alvarado, you know, he Robbie, Robbie loves being around her too. She's a people horse. <laughs> you know? she is in, she's got a lot of fans along the way too. Yeah, no, she loves people. Everybody, I can put my five-year-old daughter in the stall with her and she'll never turn a hair would never even dream of kicking anybody or biting anybody she's just sweet sweet as pie and then she goes out on the racetrack and won't let authentic go by her i mean what is it like looking back on, on that preakness victory yeah no question yeah and then that's the eventual horse of the year and i'm hearing that she will be planning for a 2021 campaign yeah, you know, we're getting her ready. Um, I haven't made any decisions on where or when we're going to run. Um, I'm going to kind of let her tell us. This morning she did something simple. I don't think they even posted it. And um, we'll probably put her on a six or a seven day work schedule where she's got a nice routine. And then we'll figure out, you know, when she gets a little bit fitter and we think she's uh, ready to pull, then we'll, fi- we'll find a spot. I might try her on the grass. I hadn't, you know, we, mm-hmm. we're... Um, the schedule's not clear. Um, the best race, I think, in the spring might be either the Apple Blossom or the La Troine. And um, those are both timing races. I've got to figure out the timing. And I wouldn't mind having a prep, but we might try on the grass this winter. You never know. I remember that had actually been a, con- um, a conversation last year about potentially sending her over to Europe to try the turf. 
Yeah, at that time, there was no schedule. There was no mm -hmm. three-year-old schedule. All the races had been canceled, so there wasn't anything to go for. Um, and that was bit out of the box. But as soon as some of the races started getting carded again, you know, at that time, they canceled Keeneland. They were looking mm -hmm. to cancel in Santa Anita. Um, New York was a big question mark. So um, once they put the, the California race back on the, on the calendar, we went there, of course. And then Kentucky came on the calendar after that. So, but I would love to try her on the grass. I think she'd handle it no problem. Um, she's breezed on the grass a couple of times at Keeneland, and uh, bullet worked when she did it. Mm. And um, you know, what's it? she doesn't have to carry a racetrack with her. <laughs> she'll run on about anything. But I think that'd be interesting dynamic is if we yeah. could try another surface. But we'll see. Well, thrilled to hear that she'll be coming back for a 2021 campaign. And that Preakness win was the second fastest Preakness ever, faster than Curlin, in fact. And you also bought Curlin as we circle back to the sales, as that's kind of the theme of this podcast. Go back to, to that sale. Do you remember anything about him, Kenny? Well, that, that that's a long story. But that horse, I actually remember a lot more about buying Curlin than, than her because there were so many things that went with it. So, so um, once again, we were working the barnyard at Keeneland and, and I crossed this horse and I went to the consigner and I said, you know, I love the big chestnut horse, but he's got a really large left ankle. What's going on with the ankle? And he says, oh, well, he had a surgery. And he said, um, yeah, it's infected. Actually, the joint site was infected at the time. So his ankle was about 50% larger than it should have been. Um, and I had a couple of veterinarians check that or check him out um, independently. And they both said, you're going to need to give him about 90 days for the ankle to heal up. Um, the surgery site had had uh, gotten inflamed. And but this horse was a Greek god without the ankle. And um, the reserve was only 19 grand. So he, he, he brings 20,000 and he sold. And I told um, a couple of my clients about him and everybody's like, well, I don't want a horse with a problem. I offered Curlin to six different people before somebody finally took him. And then even when they took him, I shipped him over to a local farm that, that one of the original partners had been in on. And he says, um, the farm manager calls me and says, did you even look at this horse? And I said, I oh, know he's got a left ankle. I said, but I did the research and this is a really nice horse. And he says, well, we don't want him. You're going to need to pick this horse up. We're not going to wow. take the horse. And, um, so both of the partners called me and, and, and reprimanded me for buying them a bad horse. And then one of them called and says, well, we're not going to take the horse. And then he asked me a question that I wished he'd never asked. He says, what are you going to do with him? And I said, that's easy. I said, I'm going to partner. I'm going to make him into a Magdalena partnership. And we do a lot of those. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to take, I'm going to take 20 or 25% of this horse and we're going to partner him out. And he says, well, if you're going to take a piece, I'll take a piece. All right, fine. Let's find some other people. We'll partner him out and we're racing. And um, the next day, the one, the other partner who'd already chewed me out says, well, we're going to keep the horse, but we're not happy you bought a horse with a bad ankle. <laughs> well, 10 million later, um, so, they, so they end up racing him and... Um, you know, he was, a, he was a freak from the beginning. Yeah. You know, he was just an amazing horse, and he always had trouble with that ankle, though. Mm -hmm. I mean, you remember he ran in a specialized bit, and he used to drift mm -hmm. out. Um, but, you know, look, good good horses, if they're fast, they'll run through those kind of things. And Steve, Steve between Helen and Steve Asmussen, they did a wonderful job. And, um, you know, I'm proud of that. I'm, it was a shame I didn't train him. Yeah. But... There were some things going on then that I had some, uh, my mother was terminal at the time and mm -hmm. I took a little break. So thus I didn't train the horse, but, um, but real proud of what he accomplished mm -hmm. and um, take charge ladies. Another one that I'm extremely proud of too, you know, yeah. one that came out of the auctions and a list of others. I probably bought about 300 horses at auction. They're stakes horses. And that is a pretty incredible feat too, because you talk about the science and it really is an inexact science, but I mean, it's got to be so rewarding when you see a horse that you had a conviction about that you liked at the sale and you see that one go on and be so successful on the racetrack. Oh, there's no question. I mean, it's the whole process. You buy them, you develop mm -hmm. them, you go through all the trials and tribulations. It is a game of failure. Mm -hmm. You buy more bad horses or average horses than good. 
But if you buy enough good ones, then pe people will continue to give you the budget to go back and do it again. And, um, you know, you got to have good horses to be competitive in this game or, or, or they will forget you fast. Well, you have had a tremendous amount of success and one very special filly in particular that we're looking forward to seeing back this year in Swiss Skydiver. Congratulations again on the Eclipse Awards. And Kenny, can't thank you enough for taking the time today. Completely my pleasure. So pleased to welcome in my next guest, Stuart Morris, an agent to pretty much everybody at the sale. Stuart uh, does a little bit of everything. We see him often as a consigner at a lot of the sales, pretty active as a consigner this past week at the OBS Winter Mix Sale. Stuart, glad to have you on today. Looking forward to speaking to you. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you very much for inviting me on, and um, I'm looking forward to our visit today. Well, let's get started with uh, last week's OBS Winter Mix Sale as we saw you um, consigning several short yearlings as that's kind of what we are maybe seeing a lot of at the start of 2021 here with some new stallions, including Mendelssohn, which I thought was pretty interesting and exciting. I haven't really gotten to see any of his progeny as of yet. Um, you had a nice filly that sold for 95000 at the sale. What have you seen from his offspring and maybe a couple of the other new stallions that you have um, seen some of their offspring? on the grounds as of yet well i i think as a group the 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 uh, crop of yearlings sires freshman sires with yearlings this year is is pretty good and they're doing a very good job um i think that's a reflection of why phasic tipton is bringing back the new sire showcase day mm -hmm. in july for the first time in a decade because i think by the cyclical nature of our pro of our industry we're in a cycle where there's a lot of very exciting young freshman sires all the way from justify at that level to practical joke and Mendelssohn who are both doing a good job. And obviously PJ has his two-year-olds this year, but Mendelssohn's doing a certainly good job with his babies overall. I think they're very athletic um, and have a lot of future in them, but even the likes of cloud computing and sharp Azteca and good mm -hmm. Samaritan. And I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting other, uh, other horses. Um, but overall, mm -hmm. I think it's a very nice group of freshman sires. Army mules doing a very good job. Army Mule, um, in fact, at the last sale down in Ocala, had kind of become the flavor of the month. And um, mm. all of his babies seem to bring somewhere between forty dollars and $60,000. Um, so I think it's an exciting group of horses with yearlings this year at all price points from, you know, 10000 and under when they were freshmen all the way up to Justify. And I think um, it's a very exciting group that's getting very consistently athletic babies that are certainly have a lot of potential. And that's an exciting thing, too, because we see these horses on the racetrack and then get a chance to kind of follow their progeny, too. I mean, have you seen any that you say, oh, wow, I can really see the influence from that particular stallion? Because I, I know everybody kind of falls in love with certain traits, obviously justified just that that incredible physical, yes, not to mention the speed we saw on track. You know, have you seen those traits of some of those new stallions kind of be passed on? Yes, I think, you know, the Mendelssohn's as a group, since you asked about him, I think they're very mm -hmm. athletic. Um, I do think that they're not the most robust, substantial group of babies mm -hmm. you saw, but they're very nice, a lot of quality. And the presumption is that they'll mature and develop into very high quality athletic mm -hmm. horses as yearlings. Um, Cloud Computing is a very interesting horse to me, I think. Um, mm -hmm. he, he, he's His father is known for very attractive individuals. Um, very, very fast looking and attractive athletic commercial type babies from McLean's music. And I think cloud computing is reproducing that himself. And if not, uh, possibly even at a more consistent level, I mean, obviously it's early days, but he's doing a good job over there at Spendthrift mm -hmm. for those boys. Um, I think good Samaritans showing a lot of the positives of his sire line. Um, I feel like his babies in my opinion are throwing a little more back to Harlan himself, the founder of the piece mm. that was up there with Mr. Hancock in Paris, um, a little more rugged, a little more kind of maybe route, uh, later, later two-year-olds and on into the three-year-old year than the traditional Harlan's holidays that have that precocious early, early lick. Um, so, but I think that as a group overall, as I said, it's a, it's a very exciting group of young horses. And, mm -hmm. and, and the nice thing is for our market and our economy right now, there are a lot of horses that someone can sell as a weanling or a short yearling for 50 or 60 or 70,000 and make very good return on their stud fee, but also leave plenty of meat on the bones for the purchaser either to resell the horse or certainly have a nice prospect to go to the racetrack with. So I think that's an interesting thing. That's just by the grace and, 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 and opportunities we've been blessed with that 
there's a in, in a somewhat volatile world and global economy right mm-hmm. now for <laughs> obvious reasons that are vast and few far you know too vast to speak about today but i think the fact that a lot of horses <laughs> can be sold well by breeders and still leave a comfort level for the buyer is also a positive i think we saw that in january both at keeneland and obs and you mentioned to me uh, the other day when we spoke leading into this podcast that you feel like as far as the market is concerned to kind of touch on that point in what's been a, a very uncertain past 12 months or mm-hmm. so that it seems like with each sale that things are maybe getting a little bit stronger that people are maybe kind of knowing a little bit more what to expect what have you noticed over the past year as far as the sales are concerned i just i feel like from you know last year was such a crazy year and the calendar and the schedule mm-hmm. was all whacked out with no saratoga and then we had the the face yeah. guys did a great job filling that void here in Kentucky and they worked with Keeneland and Keeneland and Fazek worked great together to make that happen. And it was just such a truncated timetable. We sold every horse within kind of two months. And traditionally we have that over a four or five month period. And it was just such chaos in the world, both politically and with the COVID situation that I think a lot of people were just kind of sitting back on their heels. I think we saw in November, in my opinion, a fair number of horses that were withdrawn before the sale Mm -hmm. um, for simply fear of a weak marketplace or an uncertain marketplace. And that probably actually helped November sell a little bit better because there were fewer horses to buy and the demand was still there enough to carry that a little bit. And, but since the new year and since the vaccines rolling, rolling out and, and things of that nature, um, it feels like there's a lot more energy in the room and a lot more enthusiasm and a lot more, you know, less gloom and doom and more like we're getting back to real life and to go again. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the one thing that we spoke about too is the resiliency of our industry um yeah and i think for us that when we can get to through the firewall and then catch a breath and say okay we're going to make it we're quicker than a lot to go back to normal and get back to it again so i think that's part of the resiliency of our entire industry from the grooms and the farriers and the blacksmiths and the vets to the gallop riders and the trainers and the owners everybody you guys in the media have been fantastic i mean it's been a um group effort and to think that we did that with no true unifying body, just a sheer um, passion for the thoroughbred and our sport is is pretty remarkable for us, I think, um, looking back on it from last year. It really is amazing. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I mean, doing Saratoga this year without fans, I always kind of thought it was feeling like being in the twilight zone, but just seeing how everybody really came together just to make racing happen and the triple crown out of order. So it, it's great to hear that the enthusiasm is still there. It's showing in the sales. People are are keen to continue on in our sport. And I think our sport in general has maybe done the best job of any as we've been able to kind of power through in racing when other sports weren't able to. And that really is a testament to all those people you mentioned behind the scenes as well. Um, the sales all out of order, a lot of them pushed back. How did that affect you as a consigner, as that, that schedule, as you had mentioned, with having to condense and adapt, how did that affect you as a consigner about when and where you were going to be able to sell some of those horses? Well, obviously, we didn't have the opportunity for the summer sales. So it was kind mm-hmm. of an interesting dynamic because some of those horses that are naturally just precocious and ready earlier in the year um, weren't able to go to marketplace. So kind of the guys and the, the, the later maturing ones caught up to them by the fall. So that commercial advantage was lost. But that being said, I think it was pretty good. The, fr- the, the challenging thing for me, and I'm a little bit unique compared to a lot of folks, is I sell horses all over the country. So it became a very logistically challenging situation for me because I had the sale in Kentucky, both sales in Kentucky at Faze Tipton and Keeneland September. And then in October, I sold in Maryland with Faze Tipton and Timonium. I went to Ocala to the OBS yearling sale and I came right back to the phase except in Kentucky sale. And then that leaked right into November. But in the month of October, I sold 120 horses in three States. And if you add the Keeneland to that, it was like 160 heads, 170 head in, 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 in four States in, 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 in two months. So it was a very challenging time just regarding logistics and just simply making sure everything was ready. And I'm very blessed and fortunate to have a great base of staff and help from my people that work for me. They're, they're like my family from Melinda that helps in the office and Maggie with the money to Moses and Joe and Jose and all my guys and Natalie and everybody. Uh, I, I was very fortunate to have a great crew that stood in the fire and ground through it with me and fought, fought through it. And I don't know how tired we were getting and 
and it worked out, but it was very challenging just with the sheer logistics and the grind of it. It was yeah. a very grinding process, just like the two-year-old guys went through. The two-year-old guys went through the same thing. Mm -hmm. So we got through it and we're on to the next one now and hopefully 21 will be back to normal and, and, and back on the good foot. That's it. Looking ahead, that's all you can do, right? As you actually were at OBS, I saw you were the leading consigner of OBS October as well. That had to be really gratifying after all that craziness you, you had mentioned. I mean, it sounds like a really, really busy fall for you. It was. And the crazy thing about October that was so wild was it was very challenging in the belly of that beast like it was at all the sales. It was very un, un, yeah. un, unreliable market buyer base. It was a moving platform hour to hour and minute to minute and day to day. And I actually got through the first day of the sale and was extremely frustrated and disappointed and upset and went home that mm -hmm. night. And by the time I got everything done, I was sitting at my desk in my hotel room, looking over my numbers. And I realized how blessed and fortunate I was, but it was just such a challenging time. It didn't feel like we had had the success we had because it was such a, a grind and a work at every step. Um, so we were very blessed then and it worked out great, but uh, it, it was definitely a challenge in 2020. As we're looking ahead to 2021, I wanted to ask you a little bit um, about kind of your process as a consigner. I said kind of the goal of this podcast is to shed a little bit of light, not too much. We're not pulling the curtain back too much yes, uh, on what happens in the world of the sales. But but I think some of that, that information, even to people within our industry, maybe it's not a topic that's covered as much. So if, if you could tell me kind of what your process is leading into a sale, how you prepare those horses, mm -hmm. how you decide which sale horses are going to go into. I think that's kind of a, a really interesting step-by-step -step process as you're preparing for sale season. Sure. So I'll start kind of right now because for me, my, cal my, my calendar year kind of goes from July through the next sale next weekend at Phasic Tipton in February. Um, that's kind mm -hmm. of our sale season for when we, that's how I, how I look at it myself. Um, but now is when we start recruiting, um, not, it, not, not not dissimilar to any to any anyone that's a recruiter of basketball or football talent to college or or anything like that or people were trying to get owners and trainers into their barns or trainers trying to get owners and horses into their barn. Um, I travel to mm -hmm. existing clientele I have, and we evaluate the horses through the spring. So I saw a lot of horses in Ocala last week. I saw a lot of horses in Kentucky before I left. I'm going to New York and Louisiana next month, and then I'll be back in Ocala again in March. And we make visits and trips and I watch, I, I personally work, I don't know what everybody else does, but this is my method, methodology is I watch these horses mature and grow. And then that helps me determine if they could possibly be a July sale candidate or a summer sale candidate due to their precocity mm -hmm. and maturity, or if they need to wait till the fall. And then after yeah. that, we begin to evaluate spring x-rays. We begin to evaluate pedigrees and then we go to placement. And it's not unlike a trainer looking at a condition book. You've got to be very honest with yourself and your clientele base about what you think, in your opinion, is the value and quality of their yearling in that whole package of the physique, the vet work, the pedigree, maturity, all those things. And then you, you, you do the best you can to, to put that horse in a spot where, uh, in racetrack parlance, he's eight to five or two to one, not 25 to one or 30 to one. And we want to be our, mm -hmm. put ourselves, you know, um, well, what's, what's that old adage? Uh, um, something about better company. And I can't remember anyway, um, just trying to be the big fish <laughs> in the pond, you know, trying, trying, trying to be conspicuous in the catalog. And sometimes that's due to physique alone. You know, last year in Ocala, I sold a horse for $180,000 by a nice young freshman sire that has two year olds this year named Wildcat Red. And mm -hmm. he was out of a, an older mare and he did not have the most commercial pedigree, but he was absolutely a superior physique and is probably as good a yearling as I've seen in a long, long time. And he brought $180,000. Um, so that was a situation where we had a horse that was just, we happened to catch right. And he was the best horse in the sale and two pe people decided they had to own him. Um, so once we start evaluating placement spots and the physique of the horse and the maturity of the horse, and also I try and get a lot of input from my owners. Some owners just have not had success mm -hmm. in certain venues. And they just don't want to go back whether I think it's the right place or not. And we do that because the most important thing for me is that my clientele base and my owners are, are happy and comfortable and they are, they're, they're, they're liking the, the methodology and the thought process we've, process we've gone to, to get to the placement that we've decided on. Um, so that's part of it too. We listen to them. I rely a lot on the farms 
and the folks that raise these horses to help me tell them, help them tell me how these horses are maturing and growing and how they're doing. And do they think they can make a July sale? Things of that nature. So it's, it's a very fluid and uh, ever-changing process, but that's kind of the initial part of that part. And then once we get closer to the sale time, some of my horses come in here and I put them with various farms I work with to help prepare them for auction. Some folks do a great job themselves and they prepare them for auction themselves. Um, it just depends on the owner and my client, 100%, whatever they prefer, whatever they want to do. Um, and then when it comes to the prepare, preparation of the horses, it's just like any other athlete. You want to have them out there fit and strong because the pressure at the sale grounds for those babies is much more significant than I think a lot of mm -hmm. people realize. Um, and I can tell you from being a guy that spends his, all day on his feet and all day walking up and down those show rings when I used to show horses before I moved into <laughs> selling them, um, that's a lot of walking. And that's a lot of walking on hard, hot ground <laughs> and in hot weather. And, you know, you'll have horses that'll get shown 100 to 120 times in one single day. And mm -hmm. that's three or four trips going 30 yards up and back at a very brisk pace, you know? So you're looking at a lot of miles. I mean, you're talking 10, 12 miles a day. Um, and that's mm -hmm. a lot of mental pressure and physical pressure on those babies. So we do a lot with our preparation to try and have them both mentally and physically prepared to come to the marketplace and handle those challenges to a plume. And, and when we get out there to the horse sales, we, we feed them well and we take care of them great. You know, if it's super hot, we'll have the veterinarians come in in the evenings and run some IV jugs with electrolytes and extra fluids to help them hydrate and keep them, keep them strong because, you know, we're asking these young horses a lot and we do a lot in our shed row mm -hmm. and we work very hard with my crew to keep them happy and healthy and support them in any way we need to, um, to, uh, obviously within reason regarding medication, but you know, everything we can do to keep them strong and sound and happy and, and helping us achieve the best goal, the best price we can in selling. I loved hearing about that methodology and especially the mental part of things. Cause that was going to kind of be my next question. These are young horses and, and even I think, with horses of racing age, you see how the sales, some of them mentally hold up better than others. And a lot of it really is about that preparation in, in knowing what to expect for that sales ground, for those those showings, as you mentioned. And, and it's all about the horses, of course, come first because you want them to be able to stand up to that pressure at the sales ring. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, particularly in the summer sales when it's super hot, when we're done showing it, maybe mm -hmm. five o'clock in the evening and I send someone to get some cold drinks for my guys and we'll get a hose out and rinse all the dirt and sweat off the babies and let them stand under the shade trees and pick some grass for 10 or 15 minutes. And that's one of the most um, rewarding times of my day. Cause my guys and I are relaxing, joking mm -hmm. around and we're taking care of the horses and the horses are standing there grazing and cooling out and getting their heads right. And then we walk them in the stalls and pack their feet with good poultice to draw the heat out of their feet all day. And if anybody needs a little bit of brace or liniment on some joints, we do that stuff. And, then we feed them well and put them to bed and hopefully they sleep great all night and get up ready to go the next day and do it again. Everybody's getting ready for the big days uh, at the sale. It's all kind of a similar process. Like you said, these really are athletes first and foremost, but I know that this, this kind of process is in your blood. You've been doing this a long time. You had mentioned to me that you first kind of got involved with horses at the age of 11. Tell me a little bit about the process for you, where it started and how you got to where you are. Well, to be honest, when it started, I don't really know. It's just, I was blessed in my life to grow up with Highclear. My dad's Jeff Morris, and he and my mom at the time before they got divorced when I was in college had Highclear out here in Northern Fayette County. And I don't really ever remember not wanting to do horses. I was the kid in the mm -hmm. summers that was up in the barn doing stuff while everybody else was at the swimming pool. Or I'd get in the truck with my dad to go up at four in the morning to watch horses train at Churchill or go to the races all day and come home instead of going to the, to, to the amusement park to ride roller coasters. So for me, I was very fortunate that I, I found the bug of this or it found me and I didn't shake it off and I embraced it. And then um, when I was 12 years old, I talked to my folks and I, and, and I saved up a bunch of money working on the farm and I bought my first mare um, when I was 12 and I sold her yearling the next year and we doubled on the price and then just grew from there. Um, I had a lot of fantastic mentors in my life. Besides my father, Jeff Morris, I had Bill Graves and um, Walt Robertson and Tim Wicks and my clients and dear friends in New York, the Belins Dr. Belinsky and Marty Zaretsky. And just I've had several, been very blessed to have a path of folks around me that I guess recognized my potential and wanted to help me and 
I was smart enough to shut up and listen. And I've, I feel very fortunate to have some of the best <laughs> folks that ever did this be the guys that kind of had my back, keeping me in line and keeping me on the mm -hmm. right path. So um, it's a combination of all those things. But at the end of the day, um, it's just one of those things. You know what I'm talking about, Keisha. I mean, when did you get the bug for horses? Yeah. How long? I mean, you don't want to. Oh, my, want to when I was born. Else. That's what yeah. I mean. I'm not dissimilar to that. I'm not dissimilar to that at all. You know, um, uh -huh. I was just blessed and fortunate to have a platform at my dad's farm growing up to really immerse myself in it. And read. I was reading pedigree books when I was a kid and all those things. So um, I've been actively selling horses in the marketplaces since about uh, 1988 um, myself personally. And I've been paying attention to it before that. So um, I think that gives me some good insight into things and it also causes me sometimes probably to think about too much of the old days and not catch up uh, a lot of my clients mm -hmm. and a lot of my friends tell me i have a very poor social media presence for my business but um <laughs> that's never really been something i worried about so that's probably something i should catch up on the next couple of years i guess i like it well i mean if you need help with the social media stuff i got you for sure <laughs> we'll give you a call we'll give you a call I love it. Tell me a little bit about how rewarding it is when there's a horse that you've sold for particular clients or that you've been a part of and goes on to be really successful on the racetrack. Man, you know, it's hard. to. I don't know how to put that into words. You know, um, yeah. I've been very fortunate in my life. I, I was able to foal and raise and take care of Silver Bullet Day for my dad. Wow. I sold Captain Steve. I sold Patch Attack. I've been around some very, very, very good horses in my life. I sold Henley. When I went on my own, I sold Henley's Joy in the short time mm -hmm. that I've been on my own. So it's very rewarding. It's very, very rewarding, um, particularly when there's horses that you remember that you remembered and you liked um, and that horses you thought mm -hmm. could potentially go on to be those kind of horses. And then when they do, it makes you so happy and it's so rewarding. Um, you know, at the end of the day, that's what my job is, is to get these horses in the right hands and hopefully they can go forward and have the most success, you know, at the racetrack. And obviously I have to maximize the return for my clientele base, but sometimes that means I sell a horse for a lot of money. I mean, I sold, I sold him Lee's joy for $20,000 and I was mad about it, but I had to, you know, um, got to sell, right? Yeah. Sometimes you got to turn them into money and it's frustrating. Yeah. And sometimes you, you go home scratching your head thinking, how did I miss that one? Like, am I that wrong? And then when they go and perform and show up, it, it, it makes you, it, it just reinvigorates you and, and, and it helps you feel, help, helps you to feel good. Um, but it's hard to describe that. I mean, I think in my second or third year of selling, I had four fillies out of eight in the Alcibiades. Wow. Now they all finished in the back half of the field, but they were still all in there, you know, and to be able to go into the paddock and see all those girls and pet them on the neck and talk to their owners and just stand there in the sun at Keeneland and, and embrace that moment and enjoy it was very, very gratifying. Mm -hmm. You can imagine how gratifying that would be. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah. the other thing for me too, that's really gratifying is I don't sell a lot of horses for extremely wealthy people. I do have some wealthy clientele mm -hmm. that if we have a tricky year, it's not going to make a big difference to them. You know, but I sold I sold a horse in October for the guy that runs a feed store in Karen Crow, Louisiana. You know, yeah. and we got an extra, we got a whole bunch of extra money that changed everything for him and his family because now they can yeah. do all the more things, you know. And a lot of the folks I work for are people like that. So when I go to the horse sale and mm -hmm. I get an extra 20 grand for one, or I get an extra hundred grand for one if we get really blessed, or three hundred if we get just crazy lightning strikes, that's the rewarding <laughs> part for me because these folks honor me and bless me with the opportunity to put their hard work and effort and, and sometimes lifetime of effort in creating horses and breeding programs. And they bless me with the, you know, with the trust to do that. So when it works out really well, it's um, very gratifying, especially for the smaller guys. I mean, I was down in Ocala last week and I sold a colt well for a client and she made me cry because I went to give her a hug and she was crying and thanked me because she said she could breed American this year, you know? And wow. those are the things that, those are the things that really motivate me to go is that I'm blessed with the opportunity to help these people improve their quality of bloodstock, their breeding and help them achieve their goals in this industry. And that's just the most important thing. No matter what you do is just helping people achieve their goals and be successful. And if we can do that, it's great. You know, at the end of the day for me, Acacia, I like winning, obviously we all like winning, but I really hate losing. <laughs> when it doesn't work, it makes me crazy. It just makes me mental. 
Um, I remember there's a horse I've, I've been following. He's, I've got him. We finally, he's, he's over with a friend of mine named Ricky Hendricks pursuing a career in steeplechasing now. Cause I've been trying to get in my hooks and into that for two years, but there's a horse called voting control that ran third in the breeders cup juvenile a couple of years mm-hmm. ago that I sold in Ocala to Nick Demerick and Nick and I both were shocked after the fact. And, he was worried he missed something, and I was wondering where everybody else was because we both thought he should have brought double that money that he cost. And then for that horse to go on and become successful, and then when he got to the end of his career for for Klarovich and th- they didn't want to run him on the flats anymore, for me to find my friend and client Ricky Hendricks and his family and get that horse bought and have that horse in, a, in the early days of his steeplechase training, training very forwardly and looking very exciting um, is also very rewarding because I know – that horse will now have a home for the rest of his life. When his steeplechase yeah. career is over, they'll fox hunt him. And then when he's done fox hunting, he'll see, he'll be some little baby's first riding horse. And so those are the things too that follow through for me is the, the, the long-term and the, and the life of these animals. Anytime I have an opportunity to recapture one and get it a good home, we sure try to. And I'm not unique in that. That's the great thing about our industry. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people everywhere that do that, both consigners and breeders and everybody. So it's just very rewarding when you're when we when you're blessed with the opportunity to have that happen and do that. I did not know that voting control was starting his second career in steeplechase, yes, but that makes me very very happy. I loved getting to hear that, yes, Stuart. Fantastic stuff. Yes, Thank you worth, so so much for what it's worth, Acacia. Uh, early days, yes. but very very exciting. Very very excited, and and um, there's been a few whispers he might even make it to the spa this summer if he's good enough. Oh, I can't wait for that. That's great. That That would be awesome. Showing that kind of potential and talent. So that's the exciting thing for me. That makes me happy. I grew up in that world. My uncle was a champion steeplechase jockey. My other uncle trained one of the best timber jumpers of all time. And so I have a very strong connection to that world as well myself. But just having a horse like him end up at a home like that makes my heart happy. You know, and I'm glad to hear Mm -hmm. you do too. He's a pretty special horse. I hope to see him at the spa this summer. Always makes me just uh, so thrilled to hear horses finding their second career after their racing days. And um, loved hearing about your consignment and your procedures, your methodology, everything. Fantastic stuff. Stuart, I hope to have you back on again soon. And thank you so much for your time. Best of luck with the rest of the sales season here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Acacia. Anytime you need us, give us a shout. Pleased to be joined now by Jimmy George, Marketing Director for Tattersalls. as the February sale coming up on February 4th and 5th. Jimmy, first of all, it's a live virtual sale this year. Tell me a little bit about what that means and how Tattersalls has had to adapt this past year. Yes, it's, it's a, a, another in a long line of COVID-related disruptions for, for the February sale. I think everybody, sadly, is having to get used to Used to uh, changing plans based on the based on the requirements to, to handle the pandemic. Um, so yeah, but we've we've obviously used live internet bidding and telephone bidding extensively throughout 2020, and um, that's been a hugely important um, part of staging sales in in our in our COVID world. Um, this is taking it a step further. Um, because to date we've at, at, we have managed to stage all our sales at Tannisalls in Newmarket in a conventional format. So all the horses on site, all the people on site. Obviously, restrictions in the way that people um, you know can move around the place, and uh, it's not been the not been the full sales experience, but it's been pretty near conventional. This time, sadly, with the the more extreme lockdown that we're encountering in in the UK at the moment we've we've had to go for this live virtual format so there will be no horses on site and there will be no people on site other than Tavisol staff so the um each lot will be sold the only vaguely conventional part of it will be they will be sold live by an auctioneer so people bidding live on the internet will be effectively bidding to an auctioneer and those people bidding over the telephone through Tadassel's personnel will be bidding in that sort of two, three minute slot that each horse has and obviously they'll be sold in lot number order. But they will all be at their home locations with videos and pictures on the Tadassel's website 
and all the veterinary information that um, vendors can provide and uh, basically as much information as, as people can provide for, for the benefit of the purchasers. So it's not ideal, but um, precious little has been ideal in the last 12 months or so. So we're, um, yeah, I think everybody's just responding as best they can. And that had been my next question. What has been some of the response, both on the side of consigners, maybe selling horses and not being able to have people come and watch them walk, take a look at them for themselves in person, and also on the side of potential buyers who are getting ready? What has some of that response been like for you? Yeah, it's been a very positive response so far, mirroring the way people reacted to the whole sales season last year when the when the pandemic sort of swept the world uh, you know nothing but uh, nothing but praise for everybody in the way they've uh, responded uh, obviously all of these horses can be viewed at their home base and a lot of people will be doing that either in person or sending uh, agents or representatives that they know who may be closer to that location or sending in a vet to, to perform a veterinary inspection, whatever suits their requirements. But no, feedback has been very good. And uh, look, it's a, it's a solid February catalog. It's a sale that has a proven track record for, for producing um, uh, successful racehorses, top class breeding stock, and uh, normally for, for very reasonable sums. So there's a little something for everybody as usual. And you talked about that something for everybody. You have broodmares, horses of racing age coming right off the racing track, pretty much short yearlings as well. What are some of the highlights that we should be looking for next week? I think the key to so many sales of this nature at Tavisols is the support we get from some of the biggest owner breeders, not just in Britain or Europe, but in the world. So Godolphin, Shadwell, Judmont, they've all got consignments in the February sale and uh, all the major consigners here are well represented too and a lot of the top trainers from throughout Britain and uh, you know a handful from Ireland as well so it's very very well supported and uh, I mentioned Judmont a moment ago a few years ago at the February sale they sold a, a filly off the track called Green Room for 20,000 guineas and uh, she's gone on to since produced three group one winners including the um, including the Oaks winner forever together. So uh, if you can buy the dam of three group one straight classic winners for 20,000 guineas at any sale, it tends to get you coming back for a little bit more. You mentioned Judmont, of course, with the, the leader of Judmont, Prince Abdullah, just recently passing away and creating such a legacy of incredible bloodstock. How do you think the Judmont consignment will be, will be received this year, especially given in light of, of recent things in the news, of course, with, uh, with, with Prince Abdullah passing away? Yeah, I mean, it was an enormous sadness for, for all concerned, um, the death of Prince Khalid, and uh, he, will, he will be missed by everybody in the, in the thoroughbred world, and he leaves the most extraordinary legacy. Um, and uh, from the Talisals perspective, we've been working closely with uh, the Judmont team for many, many years. They've sold an enormous number of top-class horses uh, through Talisals for for as long as the operation's been going pretty well. And uh, they bought some of their, you know, the Prince bought some of his most influential broodmares at Tavisols, some of them as yearlings. Uh, we, were, we were looking the other day at the pedigree page of, uh, of, uh, of a mare called Bahamian, who is very much one of his foundation mares, who he bought as a yearling back in 1986, which is an awful long time ago. The first year I, I think it was my first first yearling sale at Tarasols. And, uh, you know, that's the, the, the measure of the legacy left by Judmont. Their consignments are always eagerly sought after by, by everybody attending sales at Tarasols. And uh, look, it's a small team for this year's February sale, but, uh, you know, they have a nice winning Oasis Dream filly called At Ease, who's uh, likely to be one of, the, uh, one of the most sought after fillies off the track. So, uh, yeah, plenty to look forward to. I wanted to also ask you, Jimmy, about um, some of the short yearlings that are in the sale as well. Horses fold in 2020, newly turned yearlings now in 2021. Any kind of new stallions we should be looking for or any kind of the, uh, the, the younger horses that might cause a little bit of buzz at the sale coming up? Yeah, look, I mean, the, the sale always features a, a, a number of uh, short yearlings, weanlings, whatever one wants to call them. It's not a massive number this year, but a couple of the first crop sires that, that spring to mind, 
Cracksman and Harry Angel are both represented and uh, and Time Test, who has his first crop of two-year-olds coming up this year, he also has a couple as well, and also Seahenge, a son of Scat Daddy, with a with a first crop um, weanling. So yeah, look, there's 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 as I said earlier, there's something for everybody in every category at the February sale, and I think that's the the key to its appeal. How do you think that the February sale sets the tone for the rest of the year as far as Tattersall sales are concerned? Look, all sales at Tattersall's uh, are, are barometers uh, to a greater or lesser extent. The February sale is, um, you know, it's an important fixture. It's in, in relative terms for us, it's quite a new fixture. We only, the first February sale was um, in the year 2000. So, you know, this, it is early days for this sale in, as I say, relative to the, the, the history of the company. And in terms of turnover, it would be one of our one of our smaller sales, but any sale that consistently produces the quality of horses that the Tattersall's February sale does, including you know a, a French classic winner last year, Dream and Do, whose who's dam was bought for February sale for a thousand guineas. So you know every year stars like that will crop up. The the health of the sale. It is an early barometer of where the market is, not the be all and end all because it caters to certain categories of horses. But uh, look, if it carries on with the same robust fashion as we experienced throughout last year's disrupted but uh, extraordinarily uh, um, extraordinary sales season, all things considered, then I think everybody will be very pleased. And finally, I wanted to ask, as we've seen a lot more activity from the U.S. with people buying, I think particularly at, at Tattersall's and bringing some of that bloodstock over here to the U.S., maybe not so much at the February sale, but um, moving on throughout the year. How have you seen that, that kind of relationship develop or the interest from U.S. agents and trainers wanting to purchase from Tattersall sales to come over here to the United States? I think the impact of horses purchased at Tallisalls to go to America in the, in the last few years has been extraordinary um, by any standards. Uh, but one of the October yearling sale here at Tallisalls is widely regarded as the premier yearling sale in Europe. But in terms of quality, it, it may, may even make a bold claim to be the premier yearling sale in the world, certainly for turf performers. And I the biggest owners and trainers in in America in recent years, most notably the first the first trainer to to really identify the quality available at Tallisalls was Chad Brown on behalf of Seth Klarman's Claravich Stables and Peter Brandt's White Birch Stables as well. You know, I mean. The newspaper of record got them off to the most phenomenal start when she won the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies back uh, a couple of years ago. And, uh, you know, yet again, Chad had two more individual grade one winners in America from book one last year in, in terms of digital age, who won the Turf Classic, um, and uh, domestic spending, who won the, the Hollywood Derby and the Saratoga Derby. So, uh, you know, I think that tells its own story. And then to, to cap it all with Brad Cox winning the juvenile Phillies turf at, uh, at the Breeders' Cup with Aunt Pearl. So that was two Breeders' Cup juvenile Phillies turf winners in the space of the last three years, which is a pretty phenomenal performance by any standards. And if you add to that uh, Barbara Banky and Wesley Ward's uh, Philly Campanelle, whose uh, grade one win actually came over here, well, over in Europe, in France, having won the Queen Mary Stakes at, uh, at Royal Ascot and then won the pre-morning. One of the outstanding uh, sort of sprinting two-year-olds uh, on the turf in Europe last year. And uh, she also came from book one of the October Yearling Sale. And we look forward to seeing them campaigning her back here in Europe again this year. So, no, look, I mean, these are pretty obvious reasons why people from the States are beginning to target uh, yearling sales at Tallisalls very seriously. And uh, look, last year was was disrupted and uh, the, the, the number of the number of buyers able to attend was uh, was understandably less than than in 2019. But everybody's 
working working very very hard to to make it happen again this year and we'll be doing our damnedest to make it as easy as possible for people to attend all of our sales at Tazzles from wherever they're coming in the world. We wish you the best of luck not only with the February sale but throughout the rest of the year. Jimmy thank you so much for taking the time really really enjoyed speaking to you today. Thank you Acacia. I'm sorry for the odd interruption from the cat. <laughs> And that will do it for episode four of In the Ring with Acacia Courtney. I hope you all found these conversations interesting, enjoyed the stories on today's show. I had a blast recording these interviews. And a big thank you, of course, to my tremendous guests, Kenny McPeak, Stuart Morris, and Jimmy George. Uh, This one was a lot of fun for me. I've had some messages on social media, too, with some ideas for topics to cover on this show. I love it. Please keep them coming. I'm working on incorporating some of these in and I think we have some great stuff lined up in the coming weeks as always thank you so much for listening please share this podcast and uh, let's get the word out there and let's build this watch it grow continuing covering this amazing topic and this amazing world of thoroughbred racing and thoroughbred horse sales please come back next week for another episode of in the ring take care everyone